Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, everybody. This is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. First thing I want to talk about this week is the Israeli Work Week. And uh, let me give a little bit of a background. When I first came to Israel, we actually worked six days a week. Friday, we used to get home. We worked in the morning. We used to get home about two o'clock in the afternoon. And I remember I found it particularly frustrating because if you got home at two o'clock in the afternoon on a wintry day like now, then you only had two hours free until the Shabbat. And then you had Shabbat when you really had to do only Shabbat activities. You couldn't do shopping or entertaining or anything like that. And then Sunday morning, you went back to work. Now, eventually, uh, the uh, powers that be decided it would be nice if most people got uh, Friday off. Now, truth of the matter is that Friday off is a variable day because it's a long day in the summertime. It's a short day in the wintertime. So various suggestions have come up over the years that there should be another day during the month, perhaps. It'll be a day off. Give people, uh, take people out from under the pressure. And it was suggested, I remember many years ago, that once a month you have the uh, Jewish new moon, the beginning of the new month, and it was suggested that that be a day off. But nothing ever came of it. Now, the idea is starting to show its head again. So it's been suggested, by, particularly by the chief rabbi of South Africa, of all places, that since the Knesset begins their term of office now, and a new government is being established, there's a historic opportunity to do something real that could heal the divisions within Israeli society. And at the same time, they can restore to its pride of place something that is the very heart of the Jewish people, which is the Shabbat. I remember, by the way, when I came on Aliyah, I had some American friends who um, would have become uh, Sabbath observers, but Sabbath was the only day that they had off to do shopping and to do whatever it is they wanted to do. And so they, they were essentially prevented by lack of convenience. They weren't very particularly observant people, but they would have kept Shabbat if it was available to keep. But because it wasn't, they did not become Sabbath observers. And I always saw this as a terrible thing. So what the uh, chief rabbi of South Africa is, is um, expressing and suggesting is uh, that the time has now come uh, uh, to perhaps do something about it now that there's a new government. And it would, have, it would serve a lot to uh, serve uh, Jewish unity. 
the bitter fight over whether or not the Jewish state should allow public transportation and recreation and sports activities on Shabbat has led to a wider, bitter power struggle between two opposing camps fighting for the victory of their cause. For example, um, in Tel Aviv, they're pushing for transportation, public transportation on Shabbat. Uh, I know I live in Jerusalem, and the truth of the matter is, whether you are observant or not, Shabbat in Jerusalem is really different. It's quiet. Uh, there are occasional cars. There's no public transportation. And I argued for many years, based upon my experience in the United States, uh, there was a period of time when I lived in uh, southern Jersey, near Camden County, uh, near Philadelphia. And believe it or not, I was surprised when I first moved there that there was no public transportation, no buses on Sunday. The people in that part of New Jersey had voted that Sunday was a day of rest, and nobody uh, was upset about it. So Sunday in, in Burlington County, in Camden County, New Jersey, was a day that you actually felt was different. So there are now people here suggesting that there's a real practical solution that can ease the bitterness of this conflict. What, what it's suggested is declare Sunday a weekly day off for the country, a proposal that has long been discussed at various times over the last few years. The idea is to have a two-and-a-half-day weekend from Friday lunchtime to Monday morning. This will free up time and space for sports, recreation, and for people to visit family, and it leaves sacred time for Shabbat, which is our divine heritage and something that we have to make sure we hold on to. Now, it could well be that this idea, Friday afternoon to Monday morning, would be supported by a majority of Israelis. A survey was commissioned a few months ago, and it revealed widespread support for a shorter work week, with a 76% in favor of a Sunday weekend. Moreover, 91% are concerned that the tension around state and religion is undermining the unity of the Israeli society, and most significantly, 83% of respondents said that making Sunday part of the weekend will reduce these tensions. And by the way, another thing, I know from my own grandchildren who are in high tech, they don't even go into work every day. <coughs> they do a lot of work from their homes. Uh, one of my grandsons only has to show up for work on Thursdays. Did the rest the rest of the week, he's, he's, uh, does his work at home. He's in contact with his co-workers through Zoom. So not working from, uh, let's say, Friday until Monday morning is not such a big deal anymore. And it's important to point out that expanding the weekend and at the same time contracting the work week is not without global precedent. 
because that's a lot of things have changed since the COVID, especially among developed nations. We're seeing a number of countries testing a four-day work week, and the early results have been very promising as far as the socioeconomic impact is concerned. So there is every reason to believe it could actually boost Israel's economy. As things stand today, Israelis who observe Shabbat don't have a clear shopping day. Freeing up Sunday would therefore release up to 30% of the population for a day of retail shopping, for buying non-essential items. There's also many who keep Shabbat and as a result have no access to participate in sports or even enjoy being a spectator at sports events. So being able to do these things releases the tensions, relieves the tensions in society. So the uh, Rabbi Goldstein suggests, for many reasons, he believes that members of the new Knesset should pass legislation to declare Sunday a day off and the same act officially recognize Shabbat as the national treasure and heritage of the Jewish people, something which doesn't really exist right now. This will give Shabbat the respect it deserves in the public domain as befitting a Jewish state and grant the people of Israel the time and space of a free Sunday so that they can live their lives to the fullest. And having, as I said at the beginning, have experienced what it was like when we actually worked from Sunday morning until Friday afternoon every week, the idea of having several days off at the end of the week, I think would do fantastic results, fantastic results for the state of Israel. Now, there is a deep thirst in Israel society to change things. More and more Israelis love and appreciate Shabbat, and they want to make it a greater part of their lives. But no one wants their lifestyle opportunities infringed upon. Extending the weekend by making Sunday a day off is the answer to making Shabbat a day of unity, not a day of division. There is something in Israel called the Shabbat Project, which recently celebrated its 10th anniversary. And Jewish communities in more than 1,500 cities and 100 countries around the world, uh, they have a Shabbat project, and it can bring people together in unity and celebration and joy, and it inspires a positive Jewish identity, particularly among the youth. Nowhere has this experience of the last 10 years been more evident than here in Israel. It's remarkable to note that during the recent Shabbat project, Israel was the greatest source of growth of any country in the world. More than 100 municipalities threw their weight behind a project, and the um, 
people, uh, various uh, non-government organizations and private citizens led this, uh, this project, this Shabbat project. The most beautiful part of it is, is that everyone from across the spectrum of Israeli society was involved. Religious and secular, right, left, north, south, center, across all ages and demographics and levels of socioeconomic status. Now, we don't have to have a war of attrition, a battle to the death, and Shabbat and Jewish unity are not mutually exclusive. You can have Shabbat and you can have Jewish unity. (coughs) So the chief rabbi, Warren Goldstein, has held a number of private discussions with politicians across the spectrum. And he notes and he believes that legislation to declare Sunday a day off will enjoy support from all the parties. This could be a way to nurture national healing and national reconciliation because we have gone through a terrible period of last uh, about since I guess it's about four years of cyclical elections and acrimony, which has not been good for the country. And perhaps this is one of the solutions. So the newly constituted Knesset should really make this an order of business. In order to deal the enormous political and financial and military threats facing Israel, it is vital really vital that above all we have a sense of unity by introducing this kind of legislation to make a long weekend the Knesset can help bridge these divides and and essentially also bring Shabbat into the heart of the nation in a way that will foster goodwill. The, The sages teach us in the Medrash that Shabbat is the soulmate of the Jewish people. So we heal, We must heal the divisions in the country, particularly, as I mentioned a moment ago, all these like five elections in only a few years have been extremely divisive. And then when I look at the headlines in the newspaper this week and see all the fighting going on in the Knesset, it, it's really, truth of matters, it's really depressing after all these thousands of years, not to have a Jewish country. Finally, we have one, and we're tearing ourselves apart with, with uh, minuscule political problems. Something has to be done to bring national unity. Right now, the, the, the only source, as I understand it, as I observe what's happening here, the only source of national unity is the fact that we have enemies. So we are united in facing our enemies. I've heard people say, boy, if peace ever broke out, the country would fall apart. It's only our enemies that keep us together. And that is a very, very sad commentary about the nature of the Jewish people. We have to stand together, peace and war. So it could well be that extending the weekend would be a way of, of uh, putting down, cutting down the tension, allowing people to be more relaxed, think more about each other. 
a long weekend would, do, I think, go a long way into helping unify the country. The rest of this segment I want to devote to uh, the fact that um, the uh, upcoming Hanukkah festival, and uh, it's really nice. It's once a year. It's a uh, Jewish celebration that does, involves very, very few restrictions. It's not like the Sabbath. It's not like the uh, holy days. You can travel. You can do all kind of things. And it's really an extremely nice time here in Israel. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is, we're now in the Hebrew month of Kislev. Hanukkah is at the end of Kislev. And uh, these are the shortest and darkest days of the year. Uh, there's cold and stormy weather. Yet is the very month, almost 2,200 years ago, in which the Maccabees rose up to defeat the Greeks, and those Jews had fully assimilated into Greek culture and taken over society, were defeated by Yehuda Maccabi and his family, and now we celebrate uh, the holiday of uh, Hanukkah. This led to the miracle of the oil that lasted eight days and the restoration of sacrifices in the Holy Temple, as well as the return of open observance of the Jewish law of the mitzvot. It's a holiday that focuses on light. It takes place, interestingly enough, at the darkest time of the year. But it's the holiday of lights. The uh, There's another paradox inherent in Hanukkah. Families with children notice it as their children grow older. The uh, It's interesting. A lot of people put up a large table near the window filled with Hanukkah menorah, Hanukkah candelabra, and uh, at the peak, there were like nine or ten or nine, eight or nine candles every night. And each member of the family uh, lighted his own candles. And uh, as children grow up and move out, you have less and less candles at home and more in other homes or kids' homes. So uh, it's, uh, it's interesting you know, candle lighting takes a long time. Children write the blessings. They sing a song called Maho's Sure. So it's a, it's a holiday of light when the year is darkest. But when you take a step back and think about it, the, uh, the, the, in a sense, what's, what's less is more. You have less in your own home and your kids move out, you have more in your children's home. So it's an interesting case of less uh, less uh, is more. The uh, It's interesting, by the way, you know, in generally in a, in a Western society, you think bigger is more, bigger is better. It's not true. When your kids get married, go out and light their own candles in their own homes, you have less, so you have less is, be- is better. So in, in societies, we have bigger cars and bigger homes and bigger weddings, more food for your money in the restaurant, longer vacations. The truth of the matter is, Hanukkah is a time 
as they grow older and they go out and make their own homes, in your own home, less is really more. That's what you really want. You want them all out creating their own homes. So uh, that's very nice. And, and that's the nicest thing about uh, Hanukkah. I never thought about until I prepared this program that less is more. The kids grow up, they have their own families, they light their own candles in their own homes. Of course, they might come and visit you and so forth, but it's a situation. Hanukkah is a, a holiday where God helps you and your family grows and things are okay. Less is more. Something I never gave much thought about before, but it's an interesting point which I share with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then the Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In two weeks, we are going to celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah when the uh, Jewish people kicked the Hellenists out of Jerusalem and restored the temple. And that is uh, a major holiday. Although it does not have the restrictions of the holy days associated with the Bible, like Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot, it's a holiday based on a historical event that happened several thousand years ago. And it's a happy holiday. We light candles for eight days. And uh, all in all, we give presents. Some people in the United States, when I was in Curie, referred to it as the Jewish Christmas because it comes out pretty much the same time of the year as Christmas, but it is certainly no relationship whatsoever. So I really want to say a few words about the Temple Mount, which is since the Six-Day War, when it was captured by the Israeli army, the defense minister at that time, Moshe Dayan, handed over the Temple Mount to the jurisdiction of the Muslim authorities. And they limit the number of Jews who can go there. And even when you go there, and I've had several occasions to do so, you're being watched by Israeli guards and by Muslims to make sure you don't do any praying. So someone went up there several weeks ago and they report, he wrote a report about it. I want to share some of his thoughts with the listeners. Thus far, Israel has chosen to maintain a situation whereby the Muslims exercised exclusive religious and de facto national rights on the Temple Mount here in the middle of Jerusalem, and they have rigged the site as a base of attack against Israelis and anybody who makes peace with his peace with Israel. 
Jews, on the other hand, have only limited visitation rights. And as I said, I've been there twice myself and almost altogether forbidden from praying there. Jews have been attacked by Muslims on the Temple Mount, even when approaching prayer at the Western Wall. The Western Wall is below the Temple Mount, and often Muslims throw objects over the top down at the Jews praying at the Western Wall. Thousands of boulders stockpiled by Palestinians on the Temple Mount for their periodic planned outbursts of rock-throwing violence are no less outrageous. So are the illegal Islamic religious trust construction projects on the mound and even beneath it, <coughs> which have willfully destroyed centuries of Jewish archaeological treasures. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas continues to roil the waters and foment violence against Israel by repeating the canard that Al-Aqsa Mosque is in danger, meaning that the Zionists, according to him, are conspiring to blow up the mosque and blow up the Islamic shrine on the mound. This is a blood libel that goes all the way back to the notorious pro-Nazi Arab leader, Hajimin al-Husseini in the pre-state period. So people have argued and continue to believe that Israel must parry Palestinian and Islamic incitement in Jerusalem and lay out a new diplomatic initiative to solidify Israel's rights on the Temple Mount, hopefully through dialogue and even some form of regional consensus. Um, so, a writer reported that he saw an advertisement several months ago for an in-depth course of studies and tours about the Temple Mount. And uh, these courses and tours are uh, designed for tour guides run by an organization Kapot Hamanul, which means the Open Gate Organization. The phrase, which truly means the handles of the lock, comes from the Song of Songs, Shira Shirim, where the beloved fails to open the door in time when God comes to visit, tragically missing an opportunity. <coughs> now, this course has been and is an astounding and intensive learning experience. They study the first and simple temple periods, the Byzantine, Muslim, Christian, and Mamluk periods relating to the Temple Mount, the Jordanian period, the Palestinian narratives and claims. They study archaeology and ar architecture of the Temple Mount, Jewish and modern Zionist literature relating to the temples, the Temple Mount, and more. They study the laws of sanctity that apply to the Temple Mount, the processes of purification required before ascending the Temple Mount, and the halakhic literature and modern research regarding the actual location of the ancient temples, which defines the zones of the Temple Mount that can be visited from a halakhic perspective. There are certain forbidden areas, forbidden 
zones of the temple. So um, people who go to the mound first go visit a mikveh, a ritual arium, a ritual bath, and uh, they go up to the mound and they say blessings before the immersions, which something very few religious men ever have the obligation or opportunity to do. They say also a number of special pre-ascent prayers, including Psalm 84. And on the Temple Mount, they pray there quietly. People recite the you know, various chapters that they choose because they're being watched by the Muslim guards. They can't even dare bow or bend forward when saying prayers uh, because, uh, and they can't even, certainly can't prostrate yourself, prostrate yourself on the ground like the muscles do every day uh, because they've been viewed by the guards of the um, Muslim Waq as a blatant provocation. Now, uh, when Jews go, and I had the same experience, you see other Jews inaudibly praying there uh, and uh, overall, uh, any ascent to the Temple Mount is scary uh, because you have all of the holiness of the place, and uh, you walk around, and there are there are there are excellent guides, and uh, the, the um, it's kind of infuriating when you go there, and I know myself because of the walk restrictions. When you go to Mount, you learn many things. First, there's plenty of room. There are loads of undeveloped, even desolate sections of the land on the Temple Mount where Jewish prayer could easily be erected. There's plenty of room there. Uh, the uh, If you build a Jewish prayer place there, it would, would not interfere in any way with the Muslim shrines and their own prayer practices. The uh, truth of the matter is that nobody has to feel threatened by a modest presence of Jewish uh, people on the mound. <coughs> Unless your opposition to Jewish prayer and visitation on the mound stems from the wholesale denial of indigenous Jewish rights in Jerusalem and the land of Israel, which also become an almost mainstream Palestinian discourse. The and the truth of the matter is also that the, the uh, Muslim authority, the Waqf, W-A-K-F, and the Israeli police unpleasantly differentiate between various groups that visit the mount. Today, only Muslims can enter Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Shrine. These buildings used to be open to non-Muslims, but the Waqf wanted to charge an entry fee in Israel disallowed this, so the walk slammed the door shut. So uh, non-Jewish tour groups can roam the outdoors of the Temple Mount freely with their guides, although this is allowed only a few hours per day. Jewish and Israeli tour groups are also allowed to visit at limited times, mainly without interference from other either walk or Israeli police guards. If this is coordinated in advance, and if the group is not identifiably religious, Jewish religious, Orthodox, then you, you're pretty free <coughs> to access. And uh, so if you a uh, tour guide, for example, you're allowed a two-hour in-depth visit. But anybody who goes there and say an Orthodox Jew is wearing a skull cap and kippah has to wear a hat 
over his kippah, make sure that none of his ritual fringes were showing, which is rather annoying. Uh, but it's interesting. They don't they don't ask Jews to shave their beards, which is that's nice. Given the hostility of the Arab Muslim authorities to walk, I suppose there is some law and order logic to this discriminating treatment of Jews and Israelis. For the moment, uh, we really can't have any complaints against Israeli peace because they do the best they can to this super sensitive site. But from Israelis leaders, we must have higher expectations and demands. It's time for Israeli leaders to negotiate significant improvements in the way the Temple Mount is administered here in the heart of Jerusalem, the Jewish country. And Jewish and Israeli rights should be accommodated there based on principles of peace, tolerance, religious freedom for Jews and non-Jews alike. Unfortunately, there's no cooperation from the Islamic authorities. Now I want to change the uh, subject completely. <coughs> Something that I came across, a report by an Israeli um, a newsman by the name of Ohad Hemo, H-E-M-O. Uh, he uh, Sources in Tehran and the West Bank have in the past made contact with an, this Israeli journalist and uh, they contact him at the risk of their lives and they suffer the oppression that they experience in the societies they live in, which is unbearable, unbearable. and these people have contacted this Israeli journalist to let him know. The journalist who has these contacts, as I said, is Ohad Hemo, who is Channel 12 of Israel's high-profile West Bank Palestinian Affairs reporter. He told an audience of nearly 300 people in Marrakech, Morocco, uh, it was last week, and uh, 300 Israeli travel industry were, were there in Morocco. We have good relations with Morocco now. I've been there myself. And he spoke to this group, and uh, he spoke of the dangers faced by people who do the unthinkable and reach out to an enemy journalist. Uh, on the flip side, Hemo also described the hatred of Israel he has witnessed the past two weeks in Qatar covering the FIFA World Cup. The World Cup was held in Qatar the last several weeks. This Israeli journalist went there and he said that the response he had from the Arab person in the street there was very negative. He flew, uh, he, he went to Doha and he and other Israeli journalists expressed cultural shock when they discovered that despite the Abraham Accords and the warmth and ties they appeared to reflect in the Arab countries shifting attitude toward Israel, this was not always true of the people themselves. It's very interesting. He reported that people came up, up to us with hate in their eyes and started on, on monologues. I didn't have what to say to them. I realized I didn't have an audience on the other side. 
the uh, he reported this on Twitter, and others have indeed testified that he is opposite to receive with open arms and curiosity. Now, there's no doubt that Israelis have fascination with the region. The Middle East is polarized. On the one hand, there's an obsession with Israel, with Israel's existence, and Israel's success, and these are baffling to many Arabs. On the other hand, what he saw in the streets was pure hate. Uh, back in last March, Ahimo published a piece documenting life inside Tehran, Iran. He got raw footage, not on his own initiative, through from an, secretly through an Iranian man. The man made secret contact with him, and uh, he had camera footage of things that are going on in uh, Iran. And uh, the, uh, the interesting, the, 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 he had to erase the footage because he didn't want the guy get the guy into trouble. So the question he asked is, why would someone go to the danger of doing this? Because if someone feels like they're listening to it for the first time, they'll, they'll, they will talk. He, and he, the, um, the Israeli journalist said this Iranian guy told him the reason he did what he did was because he wanted to remove the extremist Islamic heads of Iran who were killing their own people. We want to show the world how foul they are. This is for revenge. <coughs> this is what this Iranian said to the Israeli journalist. Now, Iran has come under universal global scrutiny for its crackdown on protesters throughout the country following the killing of a 20-year-old woman, a Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masa Amini, after she was taken into custody by Iran's morality piece for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly in public. Her death took place on September 16th. Anti-government protests inside and outside of Iran have taken place since then, and they're not slowing down. <coughs> so far, <coughs> the death toll is apparently over 300 people as of last month, according to Iran Human Rights Nonprofit Human Rights Organization. Around June 2019, a, a someone named Suhaib Yusuf, who worked for Hamas, in Turkey, boarded a plane for East Asia. He's the son of a sheikh, a prominent Hamas head in the West Bank. And uh, so, uh, and he, he wrote to an Israeli and said he'd like to meet with him. Um, it's the, uh, and he, went, he met with the guy secretly. The guy said, I hate them. I grew up in a home that was run solely by my mother because my father was in your prisons, meaning he was in an Israeli prison. So he said, I'm getting making contact with Israel because I want to get revenge on Hamas. And once once these guys get out and get out and see Israel from a different angle than they do from a distance, it becomes quite different from the thing you were raised to hate. So uh, interesting also, this Israeli journalist said he was in Ramallah in the West Bank on assignment. That's a little bit north of Jerusalem. While there, a man pulled him aside and gave him a piece of paper with a telephone number on it. He called later, and after getting an address, he showed up in the apartment. The man handed him a book filled with handwritten accounts and told him it was a journal of my life. 
and he asked and they handed uh, to pass it on to the Israeli security agency. He, he, so the Israeli journalist said the guy lives, the Arab lives in Ramallah, he hates it, he wants to work for Israel. But these are very, very sensitive things, and the guy didn't want to get involved. <coughs> the um, diplomatic decisions made at the top don't necessarily trickle down to the people. Just look at the experience recounted by Israelis in Qatar. Morocco, by the way, seems to be cut from a different cloth in, in that regard. Here in Morocco, there's a different story, and I've been there myself, I know. The Middle East is an unpredictable region that doesn't know what will be tomorrow, which is not the story with Morocco. The ties there are really uncharacteristically warm. So the question is why? Because Morocco is far away. It's not so entrenched in the delicate throes of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and its relation with Jews go much further back than the establishment of the State of Israel. Scholars debate this, but the Jewish presence in Morocco dates back at least 2,000 years. It's deep, tolerant, respectful relationship. Said according to the Israeli journalist, when the time came to normalize this, the decision was not really strategic, diplomatic, regional, but it's also a tip of the hat to the rich, deep, and ancient relationship between Jews and Morocco. But in other countries, it's simply not the same. And I want to say a few words about Israel's relationship with Australia. Uh, Israel had a rather unique, unique relationship with Australia based on something that happened during the First World War, which I'll mention in a moment. And uh, there was a number of Australian uh, army camps outside the town of Rehoboth, where I lived, I have some friends who are roughly my age who remember that during the uh, Second World War that the Australians had camps there and they they have very fond memories of the uh, Australian soldiers as opposed to the British, by the way, because he said the Australians always seemed to be in a good mood, joking around. They were very nice to the local kids. And he said, many a time, most of them were drunk. But that's another story. The Assyrians are sort of a unique, unique, unique kind of people. At any rate, uh, Australia and Israel share a historic friendship and much contemporary, mutually beneficial cooperation. However, there are potential storm clouds on the horizon to uh, threaten to seriously disrupt the way things are. The Australia-Israel relationship has its root back in World War One. The 1915 Gallipoli campaign, when they tried to uh, kick uh, Turkey out of the war by attacking the uh, Gallipia, Gallipoli area, was a formative experience for both Australia and the Zionist movement. Movies have been made about that campaign. Books have been written about 60,000 Australians took part in a failed attempt to knock the Ottoman Turkey out of the war, but they were joined, interestingly enough, by something called the Zion Mule Corps, 
which was the first independent Jewish military formation since antiquity. The Zion Mule Corps had a lot of uh, people who became, there were 737 members. Many became very famous. They were Zionists, became part of, uh, of uh, Israel's history. Um, they fought at uh, Istanbul. It was a it was a defeat for the Allies, but then there was a Palestine Palestine campaign in 1917, and the Australians and the New Zealanders, New Zealanders who were called the Anzacs, they fought alongside a five battalion Jewish legion. The Allied advance, which included the charge of the Australian Light Horse at Beersheba on the 31st of October 1917, was history's last great successful cavalry charge, and it was supplied with crucial battlefield intelligence by the Zionist espionage ring known as Nili, which operated behind the Turkish lines. The Battle of, uh, the, of the Australian Light Horse and Beersheba is commemorated every few years. There's something called the Australian Light Horse Association, and they take part in the reactment of this famous World One Cavalry Charge, known as the Battle of Beersheba, and it's part of events marking the centenary back in uh, 1917. I'm sorry, back in 2017. It's 100 years. And uh, it's very famous. As I said, books have been written about it. And the, uh, it, the, the charge of the Australians in Beersheba and really in the waning light on October 31st, changed the war in the Middle East in favor of the British. Very famous thing. Now, by the way, I noted that this wartime interaction influenced 20th century Australian speech. They have a word called Cobber, C-O-B-B-R. It's a ubiquitous colloquialism for friend. And it's said to have stemmed from the bastardization of the Hebrew word chaver, which means a friend. Thirty years after the Palestine campaign, the United Nations was debating partition, 1947. At that critical time, Australia's UN representative named H.V. Evatt, E-V-A-T-T, lent the Jews invaluable support Ivan was a future leader of the Australian Labour Party. He chaired the important ad hoc committee on Palestine in the lead up to the General Assembly historic vote on the 29th of November 1947 in favor of Jewish statehood. This backing necessitated breaking with the mother country, Britain, which was a demonstration of Australia's newly independent standing in the world, and they broke with the British. So building on these foundations, today's Israel-Australia partnership encompasses robust economic ties 
as well as cooperation in vital matters of national security. And also, Australia, Australia has a very vibrant Jewish community, which actively promotes the relationship with Israel. Yet, here's the problem. Over the years, there have been several bumps in this road, most recently on the sensitive issue of Jerusalem. Something that doesn't get the headlines, I want to share this with the listeners. On October 2018, Liberal Party Prime Minister Scott Morrison, facing a by-election in the heavily Jewish Sydney electorate of Wentworth, indicated that Australia would follow the United States and recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and similarly move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, this pronouncement did not win the by-election for the liberals, but it did ignite opposition from Muslim-majority neighbors in Indonesia and Malaysia, as well as from domestic champions of the Palestinian cause in Australia. Australia's embassy was never moved to Jerusalem, but the Liberal government did designate West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The opposition Labour Party condemned the decision and pledged to annul it it if it returns to office. Now, in May 2022 elections, just recently, Labour was indeed victorious, with party leader Anthony Albanese replacing Morrison as the Prime Minister of Australia. Now, those concerned about the relationship were reassured, reassured by the new government that Australia's friendship with Israel will remain unchanged. But then, in October, Australia announced that it no longer recognizes West Jerusalem as Israel's capital, thus reversing the previous government's decision. Labour had its own electoral considerations, but the foreign minister, Penny Wong, emphasized the policy. Jerusalem's status, according to her, should be determined in negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, and Australia would make no decision in the matter. Now, there are no the talks between Israel and the Palestinians, as we all know, are non-existent. But the Palestinian Authority and an Arab peace initiative back in 2002 demanded a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem and a state on the four June 1967 lines. West Jerusalem, the seat of Israel's government, Israel's parliament and Israel's Supreme Court is clearly on the Israeli side of these so-called frontiers. Furthermore, Labour's hopes for a two-state solution on a base, uh, based on a series of final status peace plans. There's the Balin-Abu Mazen Agreement of 1995, 
Clinton Parameters of 2001, the Geneva Initiative of 2003, all of which recognized West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Accordingly, to proactively assert that West Jerusalem is not Israel's capital is to give succor to extremists to deny the Jewish state's right to exist in any borders and state what its capital is. Now, Hamas, a terror organization, which is recognized as a terrorist organization by Australia, praised the retraction of Australia's move of its embassy to Jerusalem. Now, the outgoing Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid responded to Australia's reversal, stating that Jerusalem is the eternal and united capital of Israel. Nothing can ever change that. And he said, we can only hope that the Australian government manages other matters more seriously than it mattered that handles his relationship with Israel and the Palestinians. So, the real challenge to Israel's Australian relationship may still lie ahead. Institutions of the Labour Party have adopted resolutions favoring recognition of the Palestinian Liberation Organization's self-declared state of Palestine. Party decisions do not necessarily bind the government, but ministers are not ruling it out. In other words, the the it's interesting that the the Labour Party uh, in in uh, in um, Australia is turning out not to be such a friend of Israel. Very unfortunate. Now there are proponents who say, well, that'll advance peace. However, divorcing Palestinian statehood from a negotiated solution will accomplish the exact opposite. If the Palestinians can receive international recognition for a state without engaging with Israel or moderating their positions, it severely curtails their motivation for ever doing so. In other words, the more countries like Australia recognize the Palestinian position, then the more stubborn the Palestinians will be and will further remove them from making peace with Israel. Moreover, the proposal is to bequeath such recognition unconditionally, regardless of ongoing harmful Palestinian behavior, which includes the provision of financial incentives to terrorists who butcher Israeli civilians, as well as the ubiquitous incitement to violence and propagation of anti-Jewish hate speech. That is what the Palestinian Authority does. And countries like Australia are simply watching this and doing nothing about it. Now, it is, there's no doubt that the, uh, the specifics of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute may be peripheral 
to Australia's national security and Australia's interest. For Israel, however, core interests are at stake. So far, the only Western country to recognize a state of Palestine was Sweden back in 2014, and that led to a downgrading of Jerusalem-Stockholm ties that lasted for eight years. During this period, Sweden's influence with Israel plummeted, as did its ability to support the Palestinians. So Sweden was an example. They recognized the Palestinian state. It's a non-existent state, and were it to be an existing state, it would be a terrorist state. But Sweden recognized this non-existent state and therefore spoiled its relations with the state of Israel. The, uh, in February 2022, a few months ago, the Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the former uh, labor leader in uh, the United Kingdom, reiterated his call for the immediate an unconditional recognition of the state of Palestine. Of course, for Corbyn, a rupture, a rupture in British-Israel ties is a desired policy goal. It's really, when you think, you stand back for a moment and look what's happening. You have these people who are anti-Israel recognizing this non-existent Palestinian state. It would be... Uh, it would be uh, funny if it wasn't uh, tragic, really. <coughs> also, there is a woman named um, Mary Lou McDonald, who, according to the opinion polls, could be Ireland's next prime minister. And uh, she's in a party called the, it's, I think it's pronounced Sinn Féin, S-I-N-N-F-E-I-N. I think it's pronounced Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is a radical nationalist movement, but on um, on uh, her, on Mary Lou McDonald's Twitter uh, uh, handle, there's no Irish flag, only a Palestinian one. Now, Albanese is not Corbyn. Albanese in uh, Australia. He's not Corbyn, and Australia is not Ireland. Precisely because of Australia's international standing, if such recognition is forthcoming, Israel will be forced to react strongly to deter others from following, following suit. So therefore, a crisis in our Israeli relationship with uh, Australia may be in the making. Something that sort of came out of nowhere but it's something that may happen. The paradox is that the government in Australia justified its decision to renege on Jerusalem by stressing its realignment with a consensus of international positions. But in recognizing a state of Palestine, a non-existent state of Palestine, Australia would no longer be in line with the European Union, 
United Kingdom, United States, Canada, and Japan, but standing together with Russia, China, and Iran. Now, the question the Australian government has to ask itself, is that where it really wants to be? Standing with Russia, China, and Iran against the Western democracies when it comes to the recognition of a, palace, a non-existent Palestinian state here in the Holy Land. So, it seems that we now have problems with Australia. It's not in the headlines yet. As a matter of fact, the information which I shared with the listeners, I picked up from several articles in the local Hebrew and English newspapers. And interestingly enough, for example, in the Jerusalem Post, the article about Australia appeared on page 18 in the paper about a week ago. So it didn't get a headline, but it really and truly is important because our relationship with other countries, and I would particularly say our relationship with Western democracies and our uh, relationship with the Anglo-Saxon countries is extremely important. And if we're going to have problems with Australia, it could breed other problems with other countries. And is something that we have to keep our eye upon. So I wanted to share that with the listeners. And if anything else turns up, I'll be more than glad to share it with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to finish the program this week with a couple of subjects that I think are important, and they are under the headlines. You don't read much about them, and they are historic. Let me start with a... uh, something about the way the United States arrests some terrorists but ignores others. That's a very important topic you don't hear much about. A terrorist involved in the Pan Am 103 bombing has been taken into custody by the United States in Libya. Now, this is interesting because the United States and Libya do not have an extradition treaty. Yet for years, U.S. officials have claimed that they can apprehend Palestinian Arab terrorists involved in killing Americans here in Israel because the U.S. and the Palestinian Authority doesn't have an extradition extradition treaty. So it will take Arab terrorists who live in, who kill Americans, who live in Libya, Uh, And there's no extradition treaty, but they say they can't pick up Arab terrorists who kill Americans here in Israel, but there's no extradition treaty. So there is obvious a double standard here. So we have to ask ourselves why. 
On November 16th, just a few days ago, the Libyan news media reported that Abu Ajela Mas'ud has been kidnapped by armed men from his residence in Tripoli, in Libya. Last week, the Biden administration announced that American officials took him from Libya into custody, flew him from Libya to the United States to stand trial in a 1988 attack more than 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in which 270 Americans were murdered. That means either that American agents went into Libya and arrested him, or that individuals acting on behalf of the United States did so. So you ask yourself, how could the United States take him into custody in a foreign country if the United States does not have an extradition treaty with that country? The answer is apparently simple. When the U.S. government really wants to put a terrorist behind bars, it can do so regardless of the legal niceties. American governments have on many occasions found ways to pressure such countries into surrendering suspects. In other words, the Americans don't have to go there themselves to do it. They put enough pressure on the country that's harboring the terrorists that they hand them over to the United States. In fact, because of the expense and the inconvenience of extradition proceedings, the United States sometimes compels country with it, which it does have treaties to surrender suspects outside the regular process. This apparently happens often with Mexico to the point that the law enforcement authorities have a nickname for this. It's called extradition Mexican style. Now, that is why it was so outrageous that the American Mideast envoy, Dennis Ross, who's written a lot of books about the Middle East, made a lot of money, involved the, invoked the extradition treaty excuse when he spoke to the, the students and faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary about 25 years ago. They were ex uh, um, upset because terrorists involved in the murder of a rabbinical student named Mark Eisenfeld and his fiancée, Sarah Ducker, were being sheltered by the Palestinian Authority. And so when he spoke at the Jewish Theological Seminary, he was pressured on this issue. Now, Ross disingenuously declared that one of the obstacles to doing that, bringing Palestinian killers to the United States for trial, is the fact that the U.S. does not have an extradition treaty with the Palestinian Authority. That was his excuse. Equally outrageous was a letter the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Walker, name is Walker, wrote back in the same time, in which he stated that Palestinian killers of Americans 
cannot be brought to the U.S. for trial because under international law, there is no extradition except between states, and the U.S. does not recognize the Palestinian Authority as having the attributes of statehood. So the American authorities use this excuse not to bring in Palestinians who are known murderers of Americans. Now it's remarkable that no journalists have called Ross or Walker to ask them what they think about the U.S. somehow managing to apprehend the Pan Am 103 bombers without any extradition treaty with Libya. It's also remarkable how many Palestinian Arab killers of Americans are hiding in plain sight. It's quite interesting that these killers have been publicly identified by the Israeli government as employees of various branches of the Palestinian Authority. So, if U.S. agents want to arrest them, they would know exactly where to find them. Some of these killers are officers in the Palestinian security forces. For example, a fellow named Amin el-Hindi, who was involved in the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre, in which a U.S. citizen named David Berger was murdered, that person serves as chief of the Palestinian Authority General Intelligence Service. Another killer named Hussein Fayyad, who was involved in the 1978 Coastal Road Massacre here in Israel, in which a U.S. citizen named Gail Rubin was murdered, has served as an advisor the Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas. Then there's Ahlam Tamimi, one of the participants in the Sabaro Pizza, Pizzeria Massacre in Jerusalem in 2001, in which an American teenager named Malki Roth was murdered. She has a $5 million price tag on her head. This, this, uh, is Ahlam Tamimi through the U.S. Rewards for Justice program. Yet, this murderer lives comfortably in Jordan, and Jordan is an American ally that refuses to turn her over for prosecution in the United States since 2001. And is Mahmoud Abbas, uh, head of the Palestinian Liberation Front, who publicly admitted that he masterminded the 1985 Achille Laura hijacking in which a U.S. citizen named Leon Klinghoffer was killed. Abbas was convicted in absentia of murder in Italy in 1986 the, uh, from 1998 to 2000, he lived openly in Gaza, let the, but the American administration failed to indict him or seek his arrest. But in 2003, American forces in Iraq captured him, 
during the course of other military actions. A senior official denounced the U.S. for arresting him, claiming that the Oslo Accords prohibited the prosecution of anyone involved in terrorism before 1993. Now, that's a lie, because the United States is not a signatory in the Oslo Accords, and the Accords say nothing about U.S. prosecuting anybody. According to the New York Times back in 2003, during questioning by U.S. officials, this Abbas admitted enough about the attack that he was involved in to make him a co-conspirator, yet he stood, is not indicted. He died of natural causes in Iraq, by the way. So all of this brings us back to the question, why the double standard of the United States dealing with Palestinian terrorists and other terrorists? The answer is that sending U.S. agents into Palestinian Authority territory to arrest killers of Americans or even arresting them in Jordan or Iraq would anger the Palestinian leadership it would create tension in America's relations with the Palestinian Authority and thereby undermine the Biden administration's goal of giving the Palestinian Authority a sovereign state along Israel's wide, nine-mile-wide borders. That is why the Pan Am 103 suspect, a situation that goes back more than 30 years, that is why he is now being brought to trial for Palestinian Arab kills Americans are still walking free. This is a fact, and it's something I wanted the listeners to be aware of. A terrible double standard regarding Palestinians and other Arabs who kill Americans. If, it, if, it, if the murder takes place in Israel, then they, they're more likely and most likely to get away with it. This is a double standard that is shameful for the American government. Now, I'm going to change the subject just to finish the program this week. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is a uh, incendiary area. You always hear a lot about it. I live about a mile and a half away from there. Jordan and the Palestinian Authority have begun taking measures to stave off any attempt by the incoming government of Israel, which apparently is going to be a right-wing government and hasn't been voted in yet, but it, it's on its way. Our prime minister was given, not our prime minister, our incoming prime minister, Netanyahu, was giving an extra few days to put together his coalition. So um, the, uh, the Palestinian Authority, together with the Jordanians, are taking action to, uh, to um, keep the new Israeli government from changing the status quo at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount. <coughs> Earlier this week, two parties launched, that is the Palestinian Authority and the Jordanian government, 
they launch an initiative to encourage many Muslims to converge on the site every day to attend sessions for reciting the Quran. This is something altogether new. Now, the initiative apparently aims to send a message to the Israeli government that Jordan and the Palestinians are determined to thwart any attempt to divide the holy site in time and space between Muslims and Jews. Now, this, this initiative also aims to reaffirm Jordan's role as custodian of the Islamic and Christian holy, uh, holy sites in Jerusalem, something that was granted to them uh, after the Six-Day War by the Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan. The Jews, Jewish army captured the old city of Jerusalem, but he essentially handed the keys to the uh, Temple Mount to the Muslim authorities, something that's aggravated a lot of people since then. So the, um, as again, as I said, the initiative aims to reaffirm Jordan's role as custodian of the Islamic and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. The, uh, the, there have been a rise of far-right parties in this last election here in Israel, and Jordanian and uh, Palestinian officials expressed concern that this new coalition head, headed by Netanyahu would, would seek to divide the compound in some way. They... Um, it's interesting how Jordan and the Palestinian Authority have in recent years condemned Israel for allowing Jews to tour the Temple Mount, describing the visits as what they called storming and violent incursion into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They, um, so it turns out that the Jordanian and Palestinian officials held a series of meetings over the past week to coordinate their moves in the aftermath of the results of the recent Israeli election. And the two sides, Jordan and uh, Palestine, agreed to step up their efforts in the international arena, including Arab and Islamic countries, to warn of the dangers, as they call it, of any attempts to alter the status quo at the holy site. Now, uh, King uh, Abdul of Jordan inaugurated a new initiative to encourage Muslims to participate in sessions to recite the Quran at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the Dome of the Rock. The main goal, of course, is to increase the presence of Muslims at the compound as a way of expressing opposition to alleged Israeli schemes to what he calls schemes to Judaize Jerusalem and its holy sites. So, uh, of course, the inauguration ceremony by this new initiative by the Jordanian king was uh, held in the Al Husseinia Palace in uh, Jordan. It was attended by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and senior Jordan and Palestinian officials. They showed a screening of a video. Uh, on the Waqf, which is the, the uh, Muslim authority, religious authority, who is part of Jordan's efforts uh, to support the steadfastness of Palestinians, according to the Jordanians, 
in line with the Hashemite custodianship of Islamic and Christian holy sites in the city. So the, uh, they're taking all these initiatives to reaffirm the Jordanian and Palestinian authority control of one of the most holy sites in the world. The, uh, of course, and, and some of the speakers at this meeting said that uh, the, it's important we have Quran recitations because this is a time when the, the mosque has, um, has been violated many times by Israeli forces. So what they're trying to do by the Palestinian Authority and the uh, Jordanian government, they're trying to send a message to a new Netanyahu-led coalition that Jordan won't allow the Israelis to undermine or end the Hashemite custodianship of the Islamic and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem, which, as I mentioned previously, was actually handed to, over to them at the end of the Six-Day War by the Israeli um, defense minister. So uh, the Palestinian Authority leadership has repeatedly voiced full support for preserving those sites and Jordan's special role. So what they're trying to do now that a new government is going to be set up here in Israel, they're taking uh, more action to uh, show that they themselves have control over the holy sites in Jerusalem. The, uh, the, the king of Jordan and launched this initiative as part, of, apparently, of what he calls his support for the steadfastness of the brothers in Palestine in general, and Jerusalem in particular. Now, obviously, the head of the Palestinian Authority thanked the Jordanian king, and the two discussed ways to enhance coordination and joint cooperation during the coming period, and especially in light of the formation of a new right-wing Israeli government. So these are the things that are happening on the ground here in Jerusalem. You don't get big headlines, but it's something I think the listeners should know about. Thanks again for listening. This is Jay Shapiro signing off. Until next week, take care of yourselves. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. 
Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India. And I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Doc Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.